The scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 through 9, and that is on page 952 of the Blue Bibles. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Imagine you found out that I was friends with lots of famous people. Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Jeff Bezos, Oprah Winfrey, Derek Jeter. That'd be amazing. <laughs> well, what if I told you I was not only friendly with those people, but they actually go to great lengths to be friends with me. They come to visit me all the time. They always pick up the phone when I call. I have an open invitation to, to go to their vacation homes and drive their sports cars whenever I'd like. You'd think I was a pretty big deal, wouldn't you? That people like that would be friends with someone like me. In fact, you might be more than a little envious of me. You might wonder what makes me so special that people like that want to be my friend. Well. Stepping down from the realm of actually famous to the realm of Christian famous, I remember one time I was walking across a seminary campus with another pastor who's very well known in Christian circles, and it was, it was taking us forever to get where we were going. Like we were going about a half mile across campus, and it took us about an hour and a half. Right? People kept stopping him to, to talk to him. And so as I was sort of standing there, minding my own business, patiently waiting for people to be done, taking pictures with this guy and, and talking... Uh, someone kind of broke off from the, the huddle and came over to me and said, who are you? <laughs> and taken aback, I was like, what, what do you mean? And he said, well, who are you? you? You must be somebody if he's with you and you're with him. Right? I, I assured him, in fact, he didn't need to worry. I was no one worth getting a picture taken with. But it was interesting, right? His reaction, our sort of instinctive sort of thought is that having an important friend makes you an important person. Well, our passage for this morning from the book of 1 Corinthians tells us that if you're a Christian, the eternal God, the one who made the universe and everything in it, the God who is more holy and glorious and powerful and important than any human being, more so than we can even begin to understand, 1 Corinthians tells us that that God wants you to know him, and he wants to be known by you. He wants to be your friend. 
He's gone to great lengths to make it possible for you to be in a relationship with him. He delights in your company. He loves to shower you with good gifts. In fact, he plans to spend eternity blessing you far beyond what you can imagine. Can you imagine having a friend like that? Now, I think it can be hard for us to believe sometime. After all, we know we're not that important. Why on earth would God want to be my friend? Right, think about it. If if you got a voicemail from the President of the United States inviting you to come over to the White House and take a dip in the pool, you would assume someone was playing a prank on you. Right? There's no reason you'd get that kind of invitation. You're not the kind of person who sips, drinks poolside with powerful people. Well, in an even greater way, sometimes Christians might struggle to imagine that God would actually want to be friends with us. Right? Maybe we've been given the faith to believe that we've been saved from our sins, that we've been provided with eternal life, and honestly, that's far beyond what we have any right to expect. But the idea that God wants even more than that from us and for us, that he wants to be in a close relationship with us. It seems a bit hard to believe. But friends, that's exactly what we're going to see this morning in our passage. But it's actually going to take us a little while to get there, because first we're going to need a little background on the book of 1 Corinthians. As we launch into this series, it'll help us, I think, to know a little bit about the background to the book. A lot of the New Testament comprises letters from leaders chosen by Jesus, Uh, called apostles. These letters were written to churches that are spread all around the Roman Empire. And and so that means that reading these letters is a bit like jumping into the personal correspondence between two parties. And so it can be helpful to know a little bit of background to their relationship. That'll impact how we understand some of the things uh, that are written. So taking some of the letters from the Apostle Paul. And if you've never read those letters, Uh, Feel free to grab a Bible from under the seat in front of you, take it home with you. You can read those letters uh, this week. But if you take his letter to the church at Rome, we call it Romans in the New Testament, this was a church that Paul had never met personally. And so it's no surprise that when you read Romans, it is Paul's least personal letter. He sticks largely to matters of Christian doctrine and, and godly living. Contrast that to the the letter we just read that Marty read from earlier, Thessalonians, where Paul talks about the sort of warm fellowship and partnership that he's had with the church there in Thessalonica, or the letter to the church at Philippi, the one that we call Philippians. This was a church that had stood by Paul in really hard times, and it supported him. And so the letter is full of sort of warm, grateful appreciation for the church. And so as we embark on this season of studying Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, we're going to see that it is an intensely personal letter. You simply can't understand it apart from the relationship between the apostle and this church. From almost the very first words, Paul's addressing some really painful things that have been going on in the church and their relationship to him. And so we're going to need some background Uh, or else it's going to be difficult to understand why Paul is saying some of the things that he's saying. So first, some background on the city of Corinth itself. I think we have a map up on the screen. Great job. Thank you, guys. So Corinth is a a city located uh, in the southern portion of uh, Greece on an isthmus that was uh, made it a major uh, trade route for sort of local traders. So you can see there it's on a very narrow stretch there. 
Um, and if, think like the Panama Canal, how sort of digging a canal through this sort of narrow stretch of land enabled you to avoid traveling around a great land mass uh, to get to the other side. In the same way, Corinth, uh, ships would oftentimes come to Corinth, transport their goods over land, and then just sort of hop on the, in the water on the other side uh, and keep going. Eventually, they actually did build a canal there. But because of this sort of strategic location for trade, it became a very wealthy and cosmopolitan city. It was destroyed by the Romans in 146 BC. And about 100 years later, uh, so a little bit before the time of Christ, Julius Caesar rebuilt the city. And it became, in the ancient world, a, a mix of maybe what we think of Las Vegas and New York City. It was wealthy, it was diverse, and it was decadent. It was known throughout the empire as a, a hotbed for all kinds of immorality. Corinthian actually became an adjective uh, that just meant perverted in the old days. In Acts chapter 18, we read that the Apostle Paul uh, leaves Athens uh, over on the sort of west of the Aegean over here. So Athens is over here. Uh, and, and Paul goes to Corinth uh, and spends a couple of years there supporting himself by making tents while he's preparing or preaching about Jesus and starting a new church. So from the details that we read there in Acts chapter 18, sort of laid over the top of some archaeological finds, we can be really sure that, that Paul's there in Corinth around 51 BC. Now, Paul preached to the Jews of Corinth in their synagogue. We read in Acts 18. And some really prominent members of the Jewish community became followers of Jesus. But that seems to have created controversy. Because the larger Jewish community there in Corinth kicks Paul out. And he goes and he begins to preach to the Gentile community instead. It seems that many Gentiles became Christians there as well, and the church was well underway. But things weren't great in Corinth. If you look there in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 to 10. So, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, this is while he's in Corinth, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people." And that may sound comforting, but it actually gives us a little insight into the fact that something was going on, right? If you, if you got a, a message in a dream from the Lord that said, hey, don't be worried, even though people are going to attack you, right? Uh, or, you know, no one will be able to harm you. Uh, you'll be like, wait, what? what? What are we talking about here? We don't know exactly why Paul needed this encouragement, but clearly something is tempting him to fear, tempting him to stop preaching, this actually becomes a bit of an issue later on in the book of 1 Corinthians. But right around 52 AD, Paul leaves the city and he goes to Ephesus in modern-day Turkey on the east side of the Aegean. You can see it up there on the map. And this uh, town of Ephesus becomes the headquarters for his ministry for about three years. So Paul's in Athens, chapter 17 of the book of Acts. Chapter 18, he goes to Corinth and he spends about two years there. Then he goes to Ephesus for three years, but his relationship with the church at Corinth doesn't end. There in Ephesus, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and he warns them, among other things, against associating with sexually immoral people. So he refers to that letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. At some point, people from Chloe's household report back to Paul while he's in Ephesus that the church in Corinth has descended into conflict and quarreling. We read about that in chapter 1, verse 11. It also seems that at some point while he's in Ephesus, Paul receives a letter from the Corinthians. He mentions this letter in uh, 1 Corinthians 
And this letter asks him questions. It pushes back on the contents of his first letter. It's a letter we don't have. Uh, And it even seems to be questioning his authority. So Paul writes back to them. And that's the letter that we have before us this morning, what we call 1 Corinthians. It's actually the second letter that Paul wrote. So after this letter, 1 Corinthians, he would visit Corinth. So he left Ephesus because things were so bad there, and he went and visited Corinth. He calls it a painful visit. And he writes actually two more letters. One, he says, was written with many tears, and it's lost to us. But the other letter we call 2 Corinthians. So Paul is writing to a young church. And it's a church that's begun to turn against him, reject his authority. A church that's embracing sin and error. Right, as you read through the letter, you see that, that bitter quarreling has fractured the peace and fellowship of the congregation. You see that sexual immorality has, has taken root and is allowed to flourish in the church. Some people are preaching that, that everyone ought to abstain from sex altogether. Christians are suing one another. They've got questions about divorce, food, gender, spiritual gifts. People are getting drunk at the Lord's table. And what we're going to see is that Paul is repeatedly calling these Christians and us to view our lives and to view our church and to view the world outside through the lens of the gospel. That's why I'm so excited to read together through this passionate, confrontational, hopeful, and at times confusing book of the Bible. The things that were going on in the Corinthian church are in many ways the same things that are going on in the church now. And so we need to hear Paul's correction. As we consider these first nine verses together this morning, I just want to walk through the passage. So I don't have an outline with specific points. Rather, I just want to look at what Paul says, talk about it a little bit, and think about how it affects our lives. And particularly as we walk through these first nine verses, let's notice together all of the things that Paul shows us about what God has already done for the Corinthians and for us in order to make us his friends. So if you have a Bible open, I think you'll be helped by following along as we'll be referring back to the text uh, over and over and again through our time. There in verse 1, Paul identifies himself as one called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. This is significant in light of everything that's happening in the church Because as I mentioned, his authority is being challenged. He's reminding the church at Corinth that he didn't appoint himself to this role. He belongs, he says, to Jesus Christ. He's been called into this work of teaching them the gospel by the will of God. He also mentions there at the end of verse 1, Sosthenes. This is a surprise. Because if you go back and you read Acts chapter 18, at the end of Paul's sort of time in Corinth and the description of his time there, uh, we, we find out that Sosthenes was the ruler of the Jewish synagogue there in Corinth. And when we last read about him, he's actually getting the, the tar beaten out of him by his fellow countrymen. It, it seems that they sort of tried to turn on Paul and it, it didn't go well with the Roman proconsul who was there. And so the people turned on Sosthenes himself. It seems at some point he must have become a follower of Jesus and joined Paul in Ephesus and is some way joining Paul in sending this letter to them. All in all, verses 1 to 3 are a fairly standard way to open an ancient letter. There in verse 3, he extends grace and peace to them. 
through Jesus Christ. But when he gets to addressing them there in verse 2, when he, when he identifies the recipients of his letter, he says something that's really important and actually maybe a bit surprising. Look there in verse 2. He says this, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of, the Lord Jesus, of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So he refers to the church there as the church of God. And he reminds them of all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. As we go through this letter, we're going to see that the church at Corinth was very puffed up about all of their spiritual experiences. Uh, they, they thought that they had achieved some really high level of spiritual maturity, that they had some, some insight and knowledge that, that even Paul himself didn't have. And so it seems like here Paul wants to radically widen their perspective. He says, you are the church of God. They don't exist for themselves. They're not free to do whatever it is they'd like to do. Rather, they belong to someone else. And they're also connected with all the other churches in the world. So while this letter is being written to them as a gathering in Corinth, the work of God throughout the world doesn't begin and end with them. Right? They're part, Paul's reminding them, of a much larger movement. Now we try to reflect that attitude in our own church life here in Sterling Park by praying for other churches, right? by asking the Lord to bless other congregations, to, to extend his grace and to use them for his glory. We understand that, that we are called to be saints here in Sterling Park along with all those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. This is why we try to think about ways that we as a congregation can help other churches in our area whether that's letting churches use our building or sending people to preach or even lead music at other churches that might need some help on a Sunday morning. We understand that we are a church existing in a very real, vital connection with other churches, that we're in cooperation with them and, and never competition. Every other church that loves the Lord Jesus, that calls upon his name, that preaches and believes his gospel, uh, is our fellow church. We're, we're in partnership with them. If you look there in verse 2, you see Paul refers to the church as those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Now, this is really important. And it's a bit crazy. Because if there's anything that's true, it's that they're obviously not sanctified. Right? Sanctified is just a, a way of saying holy or made holy. Right, the church at Corinth is anything but sanctified. I could think of a hundred adjectives to use to describe them, but, but sanctified is not one. Right, if, if our church was characterized by brazen sexual immorality, open conflict, lawsuits in the courts, people getting drunk at the Lord's table, you wouldn't be like, that church is sanctified. Right, you'd use words like train wreck or tire fire but not sanctified. But that's what Paul says here, that the church is sanctified, that the church is made holy. And the word that he uses here is a perfect passive participle. 
right? It's something that has already been done and completed for them, right? This is, this is action that is ended. It's in the past. Now, when we think of holiness or, or sanctification, we usually think of something that's a process over time, right? Over time, we gradually learn to say no to sin, things like pride and greed and anger. And over time, we learn to put on Christ-like virtues like love and kindness. In that sense, our sanctification, our holiness is, is gradual. It's something that grows over time. So hopefully, if you're a Christian, you can look at your life and, and you can look back 10 years and see ways that by God's grace, you've grown in holiness. But here in verse 2, Paul speaks of their sanctification as if it's already been accomplished, as if it's something that's been done to them in the past. So what's going on? Well, Paul understands that underneath that ongoing, lifelong process of becoming more and more holy, underneath that process, there is this one-time decisive change that occurs in our lives when we first come to Christ by faith. Uh, Paul says that believers at Corinth are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Right? That, that's important. We're sanctified in Christ Jesus. When the Holy Spirit gives us life and, and enables us to turn from our sins and to put our trust in Jesus, he unites us to Christ. We become in Christ. And, and by virtue of that, all that belongs to Jesus becomes ours. And that includes his perfect holiness. Your sin was applied and credited to him when he hung on the cross. And when you are united to Jesus by faith, all of his righteousness is credited to you. And so Paul can say to this church, you are holy. Not because of anything you've done, but because you are in Christ. That's why he says that we're called to be saints there in verse 2. That word saint, I think, maybe isn't very helpful. It can be confusing. It makes us think of the ways that the Roman Catholic Church tries to elevate certain people to a sort of super holy status. Or it might make us think of someone who's just way better than us, right? Oh, you know her. She's a saint. But the word that Paul uses here, it's just that it comes from the same word that he uses earlier in the verse when he says they're sanctified. It just means a holy one. In this sense, every single Christian... Everyone who is in Christ, united to him by faith, is a saint, is called to be a holy one. You've been made holy by virtue of your union with the Lord Jesus. Now, this is really important because it's really practical. Let me give you four thoughts about the way this truth, that, that all Christians, all who are in Christ, are sanctified. Let me give you four thoughts about the way this truth touches our lives. First, I think it, it shows us that we need to be made holy. So right at the heart of the Christian message of good news is this idea that you and I and all of humanity are not good enough on our own. Right? Even the very best of us, right? even, even the ones who are saints, right? in the way we com commonly use that word, even the very best of us isn't anywhere close to good enough to please God and to be in a right relationship with him. But in his great love, God sent his son to die for our sins. 
and to rise from the dead so that we might be forgiven and made holy and united to him. I think this stands in stark contrast to the way most of the people in our world think. Most people think that they're good enough, that as long as you're decent and don't do anything terrible, you're okay with God. The, most people, I think, are, are being discipled by the world to think that, that the good things are the things inside of me and the bad things are the things out there. That's what corrupts me. And so what I need to do is to be most true to what's in me. But the message of the gospel comes along with, with some bad news. And that news is that you actually need to change. What's inside of you is not the solution. It's actually the problem. But the good news is that God in his great love has provided for all that he requires of us. He's given us Jesus so that we can be made holy. But we must be made holy. Second thing is, because we've been made holy, we can have real joy before the Lord. So whether you particularly feel like it or not, if you're a follower of Jesus, then God looks on you as sanctified. He looks at you and he sees the holiness of his son. This is why Paul can say in, a, in the letter to the Romans, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, God is not angry at you because of your sin. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. It doesn't matter how bad your week has been. If you're in Christ, you do not need to feel guilt or fear or shame before the Lord because you've been made holy. Third thing is we ought to treat one another in the church in light of this reality. Right? If God has forgiven us and made us holy, if God does not count our sin against us, then we ought to treat one another accordingly. So when you see a brother or sister and you are aware of their very real weaknesses and failures and foibles and mistakes and misunderstandings and sins, remember that in Christ, they are sanctified. Yes, there is a time to confront sin and folly. And believe me, Paul is going to do a lot of that in this letter. But remember that God doesn't need you to stand as the prosecutor and accuser of his people. Fourth thing, this, this holiness that we've received, this definitive act of sanctification that all believers have experienced, right, the fact that in Christ we are holy, well, that's the reason we have hope of actually growing in godliness in our lives. Paul's saying to them, you are holy. You've been made righteous before God. And so then he's going to show them their lives and say, you're not, you're not living like holy people. When God calls his people to live in greater holiness, to say no to sin and to put on Christ-like virtues in their daily lives, all God is doing is calling us to be who we really are. He's calling us not to do something strange and alien, something we lack the power and ability to do. He's simply calling us to live consistently with who we are in Christ Jesus. He's not asking us to do something that's foreign to our nature. He's not asking water not to be wet or fire not to be hot. No, when God calls us to put away sin and to put on Christ-like virtues, 
He's calling holy people to live holy lives. As we go through 1 Corinthians, we're going to see Paul often motivates the church to godliness by reminding them of who they are in Christ Jesus. Well, we should keep moving through the passage. If you look there, verses 4 to 8, it's really one very long winding sentence. Paul writes, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So after greeting the church, Paul jumps into a typical note of thanksgiving. And all of the things that he mentions here are things that he's going to bring up later in the letter. There in verse 4, he says he thanks God always for the grace that's been given to them in Jesus. That word that Paul uses for grace there has the same root as the word for gift that he uses in verse 7. And this is significant because later in, in, in the, the letter... We're going to see that the Corinthians had become very, very puffed up, very proud of the spiritual gifts that they had received from God. They were speaking in tongues, and they were thinking that they had all kinds of special insight and wisdom into spiritual truth, so much so that they were beginning to think that, that maybe they were actually more mature and more spiritual than Paul himself. In fact, there in verse 5, Paul clarifies what grace it is that he's so thankful for. And he says, in every way, you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. And friends, if you've read through the book of 1 Corinthians, you know that that's crazy. Because these were the very gifts they were using against Paul. They thought that they were spiritually rich. That seems to be a word that they had used in their letter to Paul. That they already had everything they needed. That they were, they were rich. They were full of knowledge. They were full of miraculous speech. And so they didn't have to listen to Paul. And here Paul says, I thank God always that he's enriched you so much. That he's given you this knowledge and speech so much so that some commentators think that Paul's being sarcastic here. Right? But, but Paul seems to be genuinely giving thanks to God that, that these gifts are at work in their lives, even if they needed to be corrected with respect to how they were meant to function in the life of the church. There in verse 6, he says that he sees these miraculous manifestations of the Spirit's power, these great gifts that they were so proud of. He sees it as the confirmation of the testimony about Christ that had really taken root among them. And so he's grateful and he's thankful to God. Now, notice two things here. First, notice that Paul is confident that this church doesn't lack anything that they need. Right, you see that there in verse 7. You're not lacking in any spiritual gift. Right, this church hasn't arrived. They, they aren't finished with their race. There in verse 8, Paul says he's confident that God will sustain them until the end, until Christ returns. But for now, they had everything that they needed. God had given them every spiritual gift that they required. 
The, the you there in verse 7 is plural. He's saying that you, as a church, do not lack any spiritual gift. You see, God gives gifts by his spirit to every individual believer. Uh, we might think of them as, as sort of spirit-empowered strengths or abilities or, or even insights that, that are given to each believer for the purpose of building up the church. And notice Paul's confident here that these sovereignly distributed gifts of God are, are given in such a way that the church doesn't lack anything. Right? Paul, or Paul understands that God hasn't called his church to do something and then left it, sort of bereft of the strength and power that it needs. And friends, we here at Sterling Park can have the same confidence, the same gratitude now that Paul had then. We can be sure that there is nothing that God is calling us to do here as a congregation that he has not or will not equip us to do. It's a very comforting truth. That's a very solid foundation to stand upon as we look to the future and consider the ministries of our church. God would never call us to do something and then not give us the things that we need in terms of spiritual gifts and resources to do it. And I think as I reflect back over my time, my 16 years here as pastor, what I've seen is that one of the ways that God equips the church is by adding new people, people that he has uniquely gifted, whether that's people coming to Christ or even just people moving into the area and joining with our congregation. I've seen over and over again how God at just the right time has brought just the right people for just the thing he wants us to do. So let me say that if you're a, a relative newcomer here at Sterling Park, we thank God for you. We trust that you are a very good gift from God to our congregation, that you are part of what God will do in building up and, and making sure that we as a church lack for nothing. But we understand that you may be part of the way he's preparing us for the work he's calling us to do. And if you've been a member of this church for a while, I think this is a good thing to remember. I think it's easy for churches to sort of settle in and sort of become cliquish in their relationships over time so that new people are never really welcomed in to sort of penetrate the life of the congregation. But, but as a church, we always ought to see newcomers as God's kindness to us. And so if you're a newcomer, or even if you're not, I think this also reminds us to be good stewards of the gifts that God's given us. Each and every one of us who's a member of this church has been placed here by God in order to help edify and build up this congregation. And so think, maybe even talk with others or, or pray about ways that you have particularly received gifts of God's grace to serve the body and to serve the ministry of this church. The second thing I want to notice from these verses is just how amazing it is that Paul is giving thanks at all. I mean, let's be honest, this church is the worst. They had so many problems, right? Far beyond their misunderstanding of spiritual gifts, right? Again, baseline, if people are getting drunk at the Lord's table, you've got problems. But here Paul begins with gratitude to God for his work in their lives. And friends, I think that serves as a model for us 
in terms of what the gospel message does in our hearts as we think about other Christians and other churches. I think Paul is, is grateful here, not so much because he's an apostle. I think he's grateful because he's someone who has sort of deeply experienced and, and sort of internalized the message of the gospel. And as such, I think he's actually an example to us. Yes, Paul is going to correct. As we read this letter, we're going to see he, he gets sarcastic with them. He will even shame them for some shameful things that they're doing. He will, at points, speak very strongly to them. And there may be times in our lives where other Christians that we know are in need of correction like that. But notice that Paul never ceases to be thankful to God for the evidence of his grace in the lives of these people. Now, I think significantly, there's only one letter that Paul wrote that we know of uh, where he doesn't actually offer any thanks at all for the church. And that's his letter to the Galatians. There, so if you read Paul's letters, you kind of get the rhythm, right? He's like, hey, here's Paul. Here's my credentials. Here's who's writing with me. Here's the church I'm writing to. Man, I'm so thankful for you. When he writes Galatians, he goes, hey, it's Paul. And then he immediately utters a curse. He says there in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. See, the Galatian church was beginning to embrace a false gospel. They were beginning to walk away from the grace of God altogether. And so there, Paul has nothing to be thankful for. Because if they don't have the gospel, then they don't have anything. But when it comes to Corinth, as messed up as they were, Paul understood that the grace of God was still at work in their lives because they still believed the gospel. And so there's a pattern there for us, I believe. If someone is in Christ, we ought to be thankful for all of the grace that we see in their lives, even if there are problems. That ought to be our posture, just as it was Paul's. The New Testament scholar Gordon Fee put it this way. He says, to delight in God for God's working in the lives of others, even in the lives of those with whom one feels compelled to disagree, is sure evidence of one's awareness of being the recipient of God's mercies. So it was with Paul. The self-sufficient are scarcely so disposed. See, to delight in God for God's work in the lives of others, even if we disagree with them, even if there are things in need of correction, uh, Fee, I think, is right in saying that it is sure evidence that you've internalized the gospel, that you're aware that you are the, yourself the recipient of grace you didn't earn. And so, friends, let's be careful how we think about our brothers and sisters. Let's be careful how we think and speak about other churches. No matter how clearly you might see their faults, if there is the glimmer of true grace in them, 
then God is at work. And we ought to be thankful. And we ought to appreciate it. Let's turn our attention there to the final verse in our passage. You remember in verse 8, Paul expresses his confidence that despite the challenges faced by the Corinthian church, the Lord was going to sustain them. They would not end up as a spiritual shipwreck. They wouldn't abandon the faith. And he gives his reason for confidence there in verse 9. He says this, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now notice two things here. First, briefly, just notice how our spiritual lives depend on God. We've seen that all through this passage. Who is it that called Paul? Who sanctified the Corinthians? Who is it that called them to be saints, along with everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus? Who is it that's given them every spiritual gift so that they lack nothing? And here in verse 9, who is it that's called them into the fellowship of his son? Right, Paul understands that at every point, our spiritual lives depend on the activity of God. He's the one who calls. He's the one who saves, who sanctifies, who sustains. And so Paul tells us here, he is the one who is faithful. Again, Paul seems to want to reorient this puffed up church to see that they ultimately aren't the ones who matter. What matters is what God has done. And so finally, as we conclude, the last thing I want us to see here is what Paul tells us about the nature of God's work. Do you see there in verse 9, he says something that if we really understand it is, is shocking. He says, you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That word fellowship there is key. It sounds like a sort of stuffy religious term but it's actually far from that. It means to have a personal connection. It means to have an intimate relationship. We might even say a friendship. And so here Paul gives us a picture of what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian isn't to sort of sign on to some sort of religion, but rather it's to be called into a new relationship. It's to be brought by God's activity into fellowship, into communion with God himself. To be a Christian is to be called in to the most glorious, loving, important relationship you could ever have. It's to have God himself as your personal friend. Before you were in Christ, you were estranged from God. You were far from him. You were an outsider. You were kept at a distance. But Paul's saying now, not anymore. Now you are in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this is why it's so important that we're sanctified in Christ Jesus, as he says there in verse 2. This is why we have to be sustained guiltless there in verse 8. Because we can't be friends with someone holy like him while we're still in our sins. And so God has cleansed us, washed us, sanctified us so that we could be brought into fellowship. But still, what does it mean to be in fellowship with Christ? What does it mean to be in a relationship 
with his son? What does it mean to be God's friend? Well, think about your own relationships. God created friendship in order to give us a picture of what our relationship with him ought to look like. Think about the people in your life who are in fellowship with you. Right? Think of the people who are on the inside in your life, who are, who are your friends. Right? When you think about them or when you see them, there's an ease. There's a comfort. There's a sense of welcome that marks your interactions. You know that they love you and enjoy you. And you love and enjoy them. You don't have to wonder if you're welcome at their house. Right? With a friend, you just walk in without knocking because you know that you're welcome. Right? You know you're not a guest. You're a friend. When you have a friend, you make room in your busy schedule to spend time with them. Maybe throughout the day, you're in contact. You share what's going on in your life, your thoughts. You ask for help. You rejoice at good news. You share frustrations. You, you commiserate over irritations and setbacks. And maybe in some sort of provisional way, that gives us a sense of what exactly it is that God has called us into. He doesn't save us and sanctify us and then hold us at a respectable distance. But rather, he brings us into an active, caring, two-way relationship. He speaks to you through his word and through the presence of his Holy Spirit in you. And he wants you to speak to him through prayer and through song he delights in you because he loves you. And he wants you to delight in him and love him as well. God is intimately involved in every detail of your life, down to the very hairs on your head. And he's promised that he's working everything for good for you. Like a good friend, God is committed to you until the end. As Paul says here, he is faithful. He will sustain you until the Lord Jesus returns and you're with him in heaven. So Christian, as we conclude, stop for a second and think about the, whether or not the way you live and the way you relate to God really reflects this wonderful reality that you're not just sanctified, but you're called into fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about the way that you relate to God when you pray, when you come to worship on a Sunday morning, when you read your Bible, when you experience temptation, when you think of God during a normal day, do you treat him something like the, the CEO of the company you work for? Right, you know he's the boss, and so you have to keep him happy, but you're never going to interact with him personally. Right, you understand you're like at the bottom of the org chart and he's at the top. He's not going to notice you. Or do you treat him like he's a judge? or like he's a taskmaster, or like his fundamental role in your life is to serve as an inspector coming to check for any code violations in the way you live. Well, Paul reminds us here that we are called into fellowship, into relationship with him. Not because we deserve it, but because this is who God is. He's just that loving. He's just this kind and generous to us. As we said at the outset, it can be hard to believe. 
you wouldn't believe me if I said I was friends with a famous person. So what makes us think that we can be friends with God? Maybe your life makes it hard for you to imagine. Maybe you don't have good friends like this. Maybe you believe what God says, but you don't really know how you're supposed to have a relationship with God. I think for many of us, our awareness of our failure and our sin and our weakness, even our doubts, those feel like the major headlines in our lives. And so you can't really believe that God has sanctified you in his sight. And so you can't really believe that God would want to be friends with you. Whatever it is that makes it hard for you to believe that God wants this kind of relationship with you, what if I told you that God loves you so much? that he's so committed to having this kind of fellowship with you that he gave up his own son for you. Would you believe him then? Maybe it's still hard. Maybe it's still too difficult to pin down. Well, what if Jesus gave us something to do every week? A reminder, a picture, a time set aside in our busy lives where we are invited to come to him and to have communion, to have fellowship, to experience friendship with him by faith. Well, friends, this, of course, is why we observe the Lord's Supper every Sunday, or as it's sometimes called, communion every week. If you are in Christ, Jesus is inviting you now to come and experience fellowship, to experience what it's like to be his friend. You are invited to his table because you are his friend. When you come to the table, you're remembering and you're celebrating the death of Jesus, the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood so that you could be sanctified, so that you could be welcomed in a relationship with him. So Christian, given all that God has done so that you could be in fellowship with him, let's come together. We've been brought near by our faithful God, near to him and near to one another. And so let's exercise our friendship with him by coming to the table now in faith.